This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington, and this holiday weekend on Face the Nation, Russia responds to the Ukrainian sinking a key battleship with a powerful barrage of missile fire in the West, while Ukrainian President Zelensky says the situation in Mariupol is as severe as possible, just inhuman. We'll talk with Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba and get analysis from the former commander of the U.S. Army in Europe, retired Lieutenant General Ben Hodges. Plus, Delaware Democratic Senator Chris Coons will be here to talk about his fight to get more global COVID aid included in a relief bill that is stalled in Congress. And what impact will the war in Ukraine have on the world's food supply? We'll talk with the head of the United Nations World Food Program, David Beasley, and take a look at yet another jump in the inflation rate here in the U.S. Will our food and gas prices go even higher? It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. On a day when we're honoring the holy holidays of Easter, Passover, and Ramadan, it's difficult to come to grips with the bleak news this morning. Overnight, there have been mass shootings at a shopping mall in Columbia, South Carolina, and at a party in East Allegheny, part of Pittsburgh. In Jerusalem, there were more clashes at the holy site of Haram al-Sharif Temple Mount between Israeli police and Palestinian protesters. In North Korea, pictures released by the state news agency show Kim Jong-un celebrating what appears to be the successful test fire of a tactical guided weapon. In the first outdoor mass since the pandemic began, Pope Francis said the world is marking an Easter of war, and he urged peace. We begin, as we always do, with the news, but we do hope that you'll stay with us through our second half hour when we focus on some of the efforts being made to help those who are suffering all around the world. Our Chris Livesay is up first, reporting from Kyiv. Chris? Good morning. As Vladimir Putin refocuses his land war on the east, the Russian president is reminding us he can still strike Ukraine wherever he wants by air. Russia has increased missile strikes here in the capital and continues to pound major cities on the front lines. The Kyiv region, now a graveyard. The bodies of more than 900 civilians have been found in and around the capital, police say. The killing continues at Kharkiv, close to Russia's border, where overnight shelling of a residential area killed seven people, including a seven-month-old, Ukraine's local authorities say. But nowhere is the misery more total than Mariupol. Thousands have been killed in weeks of airstrikes, artillery, even starvation. Russia has now claimed victory. If true, we may never know the full scale of horror. But Chernihiv in northern Ukraine offers a glimpse. It too was encircled by Russian forces, cut off from food, water and electricity for weeks until Ukrainian forces dramatically outgunned, pushed them back. In one remarkable instance, shooting down this bomber, it crashed into this house, killing one man inside. But shockingly, no more. Its payload failing to detonate on impact landing on Nikolai's doorstep instead. We heard the air raid sirens, he says. I was just sitting and praying when all of a sudden there was a huge boom in flames. The two pilots ejected. One survived, and not just anyone. Here he is posing with Vladimir Putin and his ally, Bashar al-Assad, the president of Syria, where this ace carried out airstrikes. 
Soon after his capture, Russia pulled back its forces from Chernihiv, and what was supposed to be a minor speed bump on the way to Kyiv turned into a major setback for Russia, though not without a devastating cost to Ukraine. Chernihiv offers an unprecedented look at war. Never before, not even in Syria, have events of battle been so closely documented thanks to cell phone footage, geolocating tools, and a local population that's incredibly tech-savvy. Margaret? Chris Livesay, thank you. We go now to the foreign minister of Ukraine, Dmitry Kuleba. Minister, welcome back to the program. Uh, Mariupol's governor says the city has been wiped off the face of the earth. How long can Ukrainian forces resist Russian control of that city? The situation in Mariupol is both dire militarily and heartbreaking. Uh, the city doesn't exist anymore. The remainings of the Ukrainian army and large group of civilians are basically uh, encircled by the Russian forces. They continue their struggle. But uh, it seems from the way Russian army behaves in Mariupol, they uh, decided to raise the city to the ground at any cost. President Zelensky said the elimination of military forces in that city will mean an end to all negotiations with Russia. Have you been instructed to stop contact with Russian diplomats? Well, we uh, didn't really have any contacts uh, with uh, Russian diplomats in recent uh, weeks at the level of foreign ministries. The only level of contact is the negotiating team that consists of representatives of various institutions and uh, members of parliament. Uh, they can continue their consultations at the expert level, but no high level talks uh, are taking place. After Bush, it, was, it became particularly difficult to continue talking uh, with the Russians. But as my uh, president uh, mentioned, Mariupol may be an, a red line. The general staff of the armed forces of Ukraine said last month that Russian soldiers were being told the war must end by May the 9th. What exactly are you expecting in the coming weeks? Uh, intensification of heavy fighting in uh, eastern Ukraine, in Donbas, uh, large-scale offensive of Russia in that part of Ukraine, and also desperate attempts of the Russian forces, as I said, at, to, to finish with Mariupol at any cost. These are my expectations. And of course, missile attacks on Kyiv and other cities across Ukraine seem to continue. This past week, President Zelensky released images of a Ukrainian oligarch with close ties to Vladimir Putin, his name Viktor Medvedchuk, saying that Ukrainian forces had captured him. Uh, he had been involved in a plot to take over your government. What does Ukraine intend to do with him? Did U.S. intelligence aid in that capture? Well, uh, he's the citizen of Ukraine, so he will enjoy all procedural rights uh, because we're a country of the rule of law. And then um, the, his future will be decided uh, as part of, on the one hand, legal process, and on the other hand, the political process. We do not exclude uh, any political options. But uh, as I said, we are a country of the rule of law, and first and foremost, he will uh, face responsibility for the crimes he committed against Ukraine. What exactly was he involved with here? How much contact did he have with Russia? And what do you mean political solution? Well, uh, he was uh, extremely close to President Putin. In fact, Vladimir Putin is said to be the godfather of one of the uh, daughters of uh, Mr. Medvedchuk. I think I believe this mm -hmm. fact, spe fact speaks for itself. Uh, when I mention political uh, political solutions, you know that uh, uh, the um, spokesperson to President Putin, Mr. Peskov, said that um, Russia has no interest in uh, in exchanging Mr. Medvedchuk, but we will see how the situation evolves. The White House says President Biden will not visit Ukraine. Um, a lot of other world leaders have done so. Is it important to you to see a high-level U.S. official come? Is it important for the Americans to reopen the embassy in Ukraine? 
Since the beginning of the new wave of Russia's aggression against Ukraine, President Biden has demonstrated uh, true leadership in uh, helping providing assistance to Ukraine, in mobilizing international community to support Ukraine. So, of course, we would be uh, happy to see him uh, in our country, and it would be an important message of support to us. And, of course, a personal meeting between two presidents could also pave the way for new uh, supplies and uh, of weapons, of American wep U.S. weapons to Ukraine, and also for discussions on the political, possible political settlement of this conflict. Well, we'll see if any officials are sent. Um, I do want to ask you about a report that came out this week. 45 different countries who are part of the OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, had this investigation into war crimes. And it was, it mainly faulted Russia. It was a catalog of horrors. But it also faulted Ukraine for failing to inform the Red Cross once Ukrainian forces had identified Russian soldiers using facial recognition technology. Uh, and it, according to this report, Ukraine's apparently sending the images to the families of the dead. Is that accurate? Well, the government of Ukraine uh, is not conducting any such activities. But uh, as it was mentioned in the report aired before my appearance on your show, uh, when you discover 900 bodies of civilians killed, tortured, when you know that thousands were raped, uh, of course, there is a people's rage and people's desire to bring those responsible uh, for that to account. And we as the government work on legal ways to bring those responsible for these crimes to responsibility. It also said Ukraine has not permitted the Red Cross to visit prisoners of war. Will Ukraine commit to doing so and to investigate war crimes by its own nationals if you find that some have been committed? Well, I have uh, good reasons to complain on uh, the way uh, the Red Cross rolled out its operations in Ukraine since the beginning of the war and on the visit of the president of the Red Cross to Moscow and the way it was handled. But I don't do it because we have a good working relationship with Red Cross and we sort out all issues at the working level in the spirit of cooperation. All right, Mr. Foreign Minister, thank you for joining us today. We go now to Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, the former commanding general of the U.S. Army in Europe, and he joins us from Frankfurt, Germany. Good morning to you. Good morning, Margaret. Uh, you just heard the foreign minister describe uh, what was happening, particularly in the southeast port city of Mariupol. Many expect President Putin will intensify this assault leading up to May 9th, which is a key holiday. Uh, what do you expect to see? Well, first of all, I, of course, I agree with all that I just heard Minister Kuleba say and uh, what's been going on in Mariupol, the incredible courage and resilience of the civilians there, as well as the soldiers who have been fighting. But I do think that the pressure on the general staff to deliver Mariupol finally ahead of 9 May is immense. Uh, 9 May, of course, is this annual celebration in Russia of the end of World War II, or what they call the Great Patriotic War. It's a huge parade in Red Square every year. Uh, so obviously they need to have something to parade, to, to show as a victory on 9 May. So I think this date does does have importance there. Mm -hmm. Well, you've described a new offensive as a whole new war now. What do you mean by that? Well, what we saw in the last uh, seven weeks, of course, were, was a, a mishandled effort by Russia. Uh, they totally overestimated their ability. They were not prepared for the fight they entered. Ukrainians uh, defeated them at every turn. So, of course, Russia now has withdrawn from most places, and they're focusing on uh, the Donbass region. Uh, and interestingly, the general staff has decided not to uh, mobilize all of their reservists, which tells me that there's not going to be a phase three, that what we're going to do now for the next few weeks is phase two, and they're going to focus on trying to uh, gain control of all of Donbass and I think that's going to be it for the rest of the year because they don't they don't have the capability, I don't believe, especially if they don't mobilize reserves to continue the fight after this. Does that mean the fight could be wrapped by the 9th of May? 
No, it means that they will not have the ability to conduct any further offensive operations after this. And for sure, the fighting is going to continue. They're going to continue as long as they have missiles uh, murdering innocent Ukrainian civilians, Mm -hmm. uh, keeping the pressure on Ukraine. But my sense is that they have made a decision because of the pounding that they have taken and the lack of resources. I mean, frankly, they can't even build new tanks because the sanctions are restricting the types of parts that they have to bring in for new new equipment, that they really are culminating in their ability to launch further offensive operations, particularly towards Odessa, for example, or mm-hmm. Kiev. I, I don't see it, them having the potential for that this year. President Biden authorized new weapons transfers. We know now that some of them have been arriving just uh, over this past weekend. In this new package, artillery, 18 medium range howitzers, 40,000 artillery rounds. There's other kinds of munitions, armored personnel carriers. How long does this kind of weaponry last? How significant is it to the fight? Mm-hmm. The, the howitzers are particularly important and, the, and especially the 40,000 rounds of ammunition that are coming with those howitzers. That's the equivalent to a U.S. artillery battalion, 18 howitzers. This is, this is substantial, uh, a high-quality weapon system, but I have to say we, it's still not enough. Um, what the Ukrainians need desperately are long-range fires, rockets, artillery, drones that can, that can disrupt or destroy the systems that are causing so much damage in Ukrainian cities, and which will also play a critical role in this next phase if and when it begins. Uh, the hundreds of switchblade drones, for example, these are very good but we need about a thousand more. If you assume one drone per tank, per artillery system, per uh, infantry fighting vehicle, you can see why the numbers. This is about us being the arsenal of democracy. This is about us um, supporting democracy versus autocracy. And I would really like to hear the administration talk about winning and, and having a sense of urgency Um, on getting these things there. Otherwise, this window of opportunity we have the next couple of weeks to really disrupt Russia's attempt to build up is going to pass. Well, we hear from the administration that the aim of all this is to strengthen strengthen Ukraine's hand at a negotiating table. But we've heard from the Ukrainians, there's no table to sit at right now. Um, Are you saying it doesn't look to you like the administration has decided they want Ukraine to win? They just want a stalemate? I would say that I don't hear the administration talking about winning. I'm reluctant to say that the administration doesn't want them to win. But what what needs to be stated is what what is our objective, the United States? You know, we're not just uh, observers cheering for Ukraine here. This is about democracy across Europe and stopping an autocracy. And so uh, and of course, the Chinese are watching. So there are implications well beyond Mariupol or even even Kiev. And so if the United States were to say, we, we want to win, that means all Russian forces back to pre-24 February, all Ukrainians who have been deported, brought back home immediately, uh, a long-term commitment to the full restoration of Ukrainian sovereignty, that means Crimea and Donbass. And then finally, breaking the back of Russia's ability to project power outside of Russia, to mm-hmm. threaten Georgia, to threaten Moldova, to threaten our Baltic allies. Ben Hodges, thank you for your analysis this morning. Happy Easter. Thank you, Martin. Face the Nation will be back in a minute. Stay with us. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. 
Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. We turn now to the economy. Inflation in the U.S. surged to yet another new four-decade high of 8.5% in March, according to the Labor Department. Mark Strassman takes a closer look at how the price spike is impacting businesses and families across the country. Inflation's not running, it's sprinting. And sometimes everything on life's menu seems to bring sticker shock. Year to year, meat, fish, poultry and eggs jumped almost 14%. I can't believe how much everything has gone up. It's ridiculous. Used cars and trucks up 35%. Gas up 48%. Connecticut families are getting slammed by inflation, especially at the pump. Among major cities, Atlanta has seen America's second highest rate of inflation year to year, 10.6%, behind only Phoenix and just barely. Biggest factors, housing costs and energy prices. Blame a tangle of pressures. Supply chain issues. Trucks waiting up to 30 hours to cross from Mexico into Texas. Labor shortfalls. Walmart's offer to new truckers up to $110,000 in their first year, more than double the national average. Ukraine's crisis, its impact on energy prices. And our pandemic economy, it went from deep freeze to red hot and needs relief. The Fed is telling us that it's not going to be this year. It's probably going to be the end of next year. An inflation forecast that leaves many restaurants shaken. Inflation eats up their thin profit margins. Restaurants have had to raise prices by at least 10 percent. Karen Brummer leads Georgia's Restaurant Association. How many more restaurants in Georgia do you expect realistically will close by, say, the end of 2022? I think we could lose another 3,000 restaurants, probably. Because? Because people are just stretched to the max right now. All eyes turn now to the Fed, which uses interest rates to achieve two goals. One is full employment. America has that. Their other job is to make sure that we have price stability. They have failed on that front, and they are late to the game. Mark Strassman reporting from Atlanta. China is wrestling to contain the worst surge in COVID infections in two years. Dozens of Chinese cities are under some form of lockdown right now. But the city grabbing the headlines is Shanghai. Elizabeth Palmer reports from Tokyo. 25 million people live here, but you'd never know it. For going on three weeks, this dynamic metropolis has been shut down. Private companies like Alibaba, China's Amazon, have been working flat out, and so has an army of state workers, to feed millions of people who can't go out to shop or even seek medical help. (laughs) It hasn't gone well. Protests have erupted when food has actually run out. Anyone who tested positive had to board a special bus and check in to a government isolation facility including one in Shanghai's retrofitted convention center. Last week, there was desperate pushback when police tried to evict residents from their apartments, slated to be turned into even more isolation centers. You might think all this would convince the Communist Party to change course. Well, think again. Chinese television reported a few days ago that President Xi Jinping is doubling down on the so-called dynamic zero COVID policy. But the costs are mounting. Trucking has slowed dramatically. So has freight moving out of Shanghai's busy port. And companies that make everything from cars to iPhones are partially or completely closed. Public health experts, even inside China, off the record, will say that the current COVID policies are unsustainable. But the Communist Party has staked its reputation on them, and for that reason, they're not budging. Margaret? Elizabeth Palmer, thank you. We'll be right back. 
The White House Easter egg roll returns tomorrow after a two-year hiatus due to COVID. Last week, the Washington Post reminded us about 1946 when Harry Truman canceled it, along with the Easter dinner, for a different reason, to call attention to the post-World War II food crisis. This year, the United Nations predicts the war in Ukraine could cause an estimated 1.7 billion people to go hungry. Coming up in our next half hour, a conversation with the head of the U.N. World Food Program about this hunger crisis 76 years later. We'll be right back with more Face the Nation, including Senator Chris Coons on global COVID relief and a lot more. Stay with us. If you're constantly on the hunt for a good deal, then you need Rakuten. Rakuten is the smartest way to save money when you shop because members get cash back at over 3,500 stores across every category, including fashion, beauty, electronics, home essentials, traveling, dining, and more. You're already shopping at your favorite stores. Why not save while you're doing it? It's a no-brainer. Get the Rakuten app now and join the 17 million members who are already saving. Cashback rates change daily. See Rakuten.com for details. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Your cash back really adds up. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car or a house. It's the four wheels that get you where you're going and the four walls that welcome you home. When you combine auto and home insurance with Amica, we'll help protect it all. And the more you cover, the more you can save. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. Welcome back to Face the Nation. A new COVID-19 relief funding bill is working its way through Congress, but it is facing some challenges in the Senate. Democrat Chris Coons of Delaware joins us now from Wilmington. Good morning to you, Senator, and happy Easter. Happy Easter, Margaret. Great to be on with you. Leader Schumer has said new money for global vaccination will have to wait until later in the spring uh, because the Senate couldn't come to an agreement. There are still more than 3,000 people around the world dying from COVID each day, a new variant coming out roughly every four months. What do you see as the real world impact of this stall? Well, Margaret, I was so disappointed that we in Congress could not come together and deliver critically needed global help um, to deliver the vaccines that we've already invented, developed, and purchased, and to make sure that the nearly 3 billion people around the world who haven't yet had a single vaccine dose uh, get some protection against this pandemic. As we were fighting over this additional payment, this additional funding for COVID relief globally, one of my colleagues memorably said, well, my constituents are done with this pandemic. Margaret, just because we're done with the pandemic doesn't mean it's done with us. And the best way to protect the American people from the next variant that might kill more Americans and more people around the world is to ensure that the rest of the world has access to America's vaccines. Last point, there's dozens of countries that had to rely on Chinese and Russian vaccines that don't work. Uh, Senator Romney has argued that this needs to be paid for. Um, is there any compromise that you see here? Because I think you just said that the vaccine is sitting already purchased. So what happens? Does it just go bad if you don't come up with this funding? Um, we are going to lose millions of doses of vaccine that will expire. Uh, and I think that's part of the argument that I've been making to my Republican colleagues. Uh, we shouldn't waste this moment, this opportunity. Uh, I respect uh, Senator Romney's press for us to find offsets. But in a moment when we badly need additional emergency funding to support the Ukrainian military resistance against Russian aggression, to support millions of refugees uh, in Ukraine and around the region in Europe and throughout the world, and to provide uh, food relief and, and additional COVID relief, uh, I think we should treat this as emergency spending. Uh, but frankly, we'll negotiate what we have to in order to secure a chance to move forward and not waste the vital vaccines America has already purchased. There are some Republicans saying there should be no spending except for on defense. Are you saying this is how it should be characterized? I think this is critical to our national security. Look, we've already lost a million Americans. 
this weekend as families gather to celebrate Easter Sunday or to celebrate Passover or um, during the holy month of Ramadan. Uh, we have folks from all three major global faiths, from uh, Islam, from Judaism, from Christianity, uh, that jointly have their roots in the Middle East millennia ago. All of these great faiths have a common principle uh, to do unto others as you'd have them do unto you and to care um, for those in need around the world. I think we can and should justify this additional spending as critical for our national security or as teaching our values, showing to each other the best in the human spirit and the most central tenets of the faith that inspires so many Americans. For the 10 billion of funding that um, is sitting in Congress uh, for future vote, that would go towards vaccines and treatments here in the United States. Even some Senate Democrats are saying they want to attach some kind of amendment regarding these border uh, restrictions related to COVID. Um, do you see a way out of this standoff? Margaret, it's going to be challenging. So what is the compromise to get around the issue at the southern border? <laughs> Um, well, frankly, what I think you're referring to is the announcement that Title 42, which is a public health measure, uh, may be rolled back in a number of weeks. Um, that's something where the CDC declared um, that they could no longer justify this ongoing practice of expelling folks who come to our border based on the pandemic. Uh, in the region where I'm from, uh, we're seeing infections rise. I think Philadelphia, uh, for example, just returned to a mask mandate. So uh, my hope is that that will be reconsidered appropriately. Mm -hmm. uh, I know that there are both Republicans and Democrats calling for a reconsideration. And the administration just announced a plan for how to deal with a possible surge in crossings at the border. Margaret, we do need to come together uh, and show our values that we can secure our border and improve the inhumane immigration system, uh, the immigration system mm -hmm. that so many of us have worked to try and address for years. But I think we can separate that. We should separate that uh, from delivering COVID relief that will protect American lives and other lives, billions of lives around the world. In some public remarks this week, you said um, the country needs to talk about when it might be willing to send troops to Ukraine. You said if the answer is never, then we are inviting another level of escalation and brutality by Putin. Are you arguing that President Biden Margaret, was wrong when he said he would not send troops to Ukraine? Are you asking him to set a red line? Margaret, I think those of us in Congress who have a critical role in setting foreign policy uh, and in advising uh, the president in terms of his decisions as commander in chief uh, need to look clearly uh, at the level of brutality. This is a moment of enormous challenge for all of us. Uh, and I deeply respect President Biden's leadership in pulling together the West, in imposing crushing sanctions uh, on Russia, and in bringing to this fight countries that had stayed on the sidelines before. I think President Biden's leadership has been steady and constructive, but this is a critical moment. If Vladimir Putin, who has shown us how brutal he can be, is allowed to just continue uh, to massacre civilians, to commit war crimes um, throughout Ukraine uh, without NATO, without the West uh, coming more forcefully to his aid, um, I, I, I deeply worry that what's going to happen next is that we will see Ukraine turn into Syria. Mm -hmm. The American people cannot turn away from this tragedy in Ukraine. I think the history of the 21st century turns on how fiercely mm -hmm. we defend freedom in Ukraine and that Putin will only stop when we stop him. I'll close with this, Margaret. This is a weekend when so many families gather to celebrate yes. the very best in the human spirit um, and where we grieve the loss of many to due to COVID. We should also be prayerful and mindful of those who are fighting for freedom in Ukraine uh, and how yes. much their heroism and patriotism inspires the rest of us. Senator Coons, thank you and happy Easter. Thank you, Margaret. We'll be right back with a look at the devastating impact of the war in Ukraine on the world's food supply. Stay with us. We go now to David Beasley, the executive director of the U.N.'s World Food Program. He joins us from Lviv, Ukraine. Are you confident you can keep food supply lines open? No, I'm not. I'm not confident at all. There are places that we can't reach, like in Mariupol and other places where Russian forces have besieged the city and, and are not allowing us the access we need. If we get the access, if we deconflict these access points, we can reach every single person 
that are suffering, struggling for food right now. Given the lack of access to Mariupol, do you believe Vladimir Putin is using starvation as a weapon? We've seen food depots that have been blown away. I've seen places where there's nothing in these warehouses but food. That, and that's not even in Maripol. And so there's no question food is being used as a weapon of war in many different ways here. And uh, I don't know the reason or the rationale for it. We know the majority of Ukraine's own farmland is in the east where fighting is expected to pick up. Uh, we've seen images of Ukrainian farmers wearing bulletproof vests still going out there, still tending to their fields. Do you have any sense of how the actual food supply from within Ukraine is going to be affected? No, it's going to be a major factor, Margaret. Ukraine grows enough food to feed 400 million people around the planet, 400 million people. In fact, we buy 50 percent of all the grain we buy from Ukraine, which allows us to feed about 125 million people. And this is a very serious problem. If we don't get the farmers back in the field, not just a few, but all the farmers back into the field so they can plant, they can put fertilizer out, they can harvest. And then equally as important is we've got to get the ports open again. That's the basis and the way by which 400 million people get their food from Ukraine right now. So that's got to be opened up. It's got to be demined. It's got to be deconflicted. And it's got to happen quickly. The U.N. issued a really frightening report this past week saying food prices are up 34 percent versus a year ago. Um, and that spike is threatening social unrest in countries all around the world. What areas are you most concerned about? What areas is the crisis in Ukraine going to cause violence in? It's, it's going to cause problems all around the world. And for example, we've got now 45 million people in 38 countries that are knocking on famine's door. And you may see a general price increase of food, let's say 38 to 40 percent. But in some of the very tough places, this could be 100, 200 percent like in Syria. And let me just give you, for example, in Yemen, we've already cut rations to 8 million people by 50 percent. In Chad, Niger, Mali, we're already seeing an incredible number of people talking about migrating from Central America into the United States, from El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras. Pricing is going up, up, up. If we don't get the food that we need to reach the people in need, whether it's in the Middle East, Northern Africa or in Central America, you're going to have famine and you will have destabilization of nations and then you will have mass migration. And this will cost a thousand times more than if we can get the food and reach the people before they either die or create political unrest or migrate. You're already cutting back on food rations in certain countries because of the crisis in Ukraine. How do you decide that? Because of increased fuel costs, increased food costs and shipping costs, we are already experiencing a $71 million increase in operational costs per month. So when we don't have enough money, well, guess what? We have to choose which children eat, which children don't eat. We try to reach the most vulnerable children, but it's based on money. There's $430 trillion worth of wealth around the world today. There's no reason a single child should be dying from hunger, much less going to bed hungry. The United States is the single largest donor. Um, in the past, Russia has provided millions of dollars in funding. Do you expect them to cough up a dime right now? Well, we'll just have to see. I mean, they are a major producer of food, no doubt about that. And just like Ukraine is the breadbasket of the world, and now they're in bread lines. The United States has been stepping up in major ways, and it's got to step up more in a way it never has before. We're facing a perfect storm right now. We're going to need extra few billion this year. But if we don't get it, you're going to have war conflict destabilization, which is going to cost a thousand times that. Well, there was additional food aid that was cut out of a recent COVID bill on Capitol Hill um, for those who say the United States needs to be more fiscally responsible, that it can't continue to pump in more aid money. Uh, what would you say to that? How do you persuade some of your fellow Republicans who are skeptical? It's not difficult at all. It's like having uh, a leaking water lines in the ceiling and you don't fix them. 
and you go have to replace the flooring. You're going to have to replace the, the, the table, the chairs, the curtains. It's a lot cheaper to go up there and fix the water lines. If you don't reach the people where they are, it's going to cost you a thousand times more. We feed 125 million people on any given day, week, or month. And I know from firsthand experience, people don't want to leave home. They don't want to migrate. But if they don't have food, and for example, in Syria, we can feed a Syrian in Syria for 50 cents a day. That same Syrian ends up in Berlin or Brussels, the United States. The humanitarian support package is $70 a day. World Food Program put out a report saying back in 2015, that surge of Syrian migrants into Europe was driven by a cut of funding in World Food Program aid because people couldn't find food in the camps. They went elsewhere. Are you predicting that you see a refugee crisis resulting if there is not more food aid? I have no question about it. This is what Germany and the EU realized their mistake. I have talked with the German leadership and they realized the mistake they made by not going in in advance and dealing with it up front. We survey people all the time. When you feed 125 million people like we do, we survey them. We talk with them. I have met with families. They don't want to leave home. But if they don't have food, I don't know a mother or father in the world that wouldn't do what they need to do to get their child food. And that includes leaving home. Is the crisis in Ukraine diverting resources away from desperate places like Afghanistan? The last thing we want to do is take food from a hungry child to give to a starving child. I don't care where they are in the world. We thought it was bad enough. We had a perfect storm with conflict, climate shocks and COVID. Then Ethiopia crisis. Then on top of Yemen and Syria, then Afghanistan hit. And just when we thought it couldn't get any worse, and we were running short of monies, which is why we've been cutting rations to children and families and people around the world. Then you have Ukraine, the breadbasket of the world. So we don't have enough money to reach the children in Afghanistan, Ethiopia, and Ukraine. And now because we're devastating the breadbasket of the world, there's a possibility that children all over the world, independent of humanitarian aid, are going to not have the availability of food. Good luck to you, sir. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Mark. We'll be back in a moment. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard... We think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. The number of migrants crossing the U.S. southern border has already hit a record in March, and we aren't even at peak migration season. We want to go now to Sister Norma Pimentel, the executive director of the Catholic Charities of the Rio Grande Valley. Good morning to you, Sister. Happy Easter. Good morning to you, too. Uh, We know all of these numbers are expected to climb in the coming weeks after some of those health restrictions are peeled back at the border. Are you prepared for what is to come? Uh, Most definitely. You know, what is happening has happened for a while already. So many years, numbers have increased. But I'm not focused on, on... on Title 42, per se, I'm more focused on ensuring that those families who are at our border that I see daily, uh, uh, who face violence, face persecution, can have access to protection and and to uh, a humane treatment. Well, you wrote in an op-ed last year, um, you made an appeal for President Biden to come down personally to see some of what you are describing. He hasn't been there yet. What impact do you think uh, a personal experience would have? I definitely believe that somebody, everybody should come to the border 
so that they ha can have an opportunity to see our community and the people we serve. It, they can get a, a see for themselves and meet families. I think that that impacts somebody's uh, way of looking at what is happening. And so I definitely encourage President Biden to come and see and to, uh, and to be able to understand more closely what a family that is uh, suffering at the border, uh, how he must decide how to, how to proceed, you know? Well, you've spoken out as well um, about something called the migrant protection protocols, the remain in Mexico policy that I know the Supreme Court is about to take up the, later this month. Um, and this would allow for asylum seekers who are trying to get into the United States to have to stay on the Mexican side of the border while they go through U.S. processing. You said it is immoral, immoral and abhorrent to deter people who are legally and peacefully seeking safety in the United States by deliberately exposing them to the very perils that they are hoping to escape. Can you tell us what are those conditions and what safe alternatives are there? I visit uh, the border in the Mexican side almost daily. And, and what I see is families suffering because of the fact that there's a lot of uh, uh, abuse for the, to them, you know, and the conditions are terrible and, and there's dangerous, uh, the children being exposed to, to being kidnapped, to be snatched, to be hurt. And so uh, it's not right for us to do this. I think that someone who faces violence, fears for their lives, for their children's, there needs to be a way to to access protection. And that's something that we as a nation can offer uh, uh, to them. So you would like to see them housed on the U.S. side of the border rather than the Mexican side? I believe that we as a country can, can find ways to be able to offer protection. That could be in the U.S. side. Most definitely they're asking for protection and they're fearing for their lives. There needs to be a way to be able to access that protection. And and there there's not anything right now. And so whatever that answer is, I think it's something that we can work to make it happen because these families are in great danger. We are still in the midst of this public health crisis. And I know the federal government has relied a lot on organizations like yours to help carry out COVID tests for those migrants who do Across the border and recently have started to offer them vaccines as well. Um, how does someone who is undocumented even prove that they are vaccinated? How do you reassure American people at home that there isn't a health risk? Because we at the border are making sure that anyone that enters the country is, pro is being offered that safety, that 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 uh, care, so that if they are exposed to the virus, they can get be isolated mm -hmm. and they can receive that care, so that they don't enter our country and spread the virus anywhere else. And so I think that my the partnership that I have here in in the Rio Grande Valley with our our law enforcement, our our government, city government in McAllen and the Border Patrol, we work together to make sure that we address this correctly. And, and there is not that, that there should not be that fear for, for what is uh, the people that are entering our country. You know, I think that, that we must ref help us understand differently what the border is like. If you come and visit and see for yourself and, and understand our community and how we work and also how uh, the people we serve. I know you're not a political person. You are a humanitarian. Um, but the work Catholic Charities does with children in particular who have crossed the border got some sharp criticism recently from a conspiracy theorist in this country, Alex Jones. And I understand Pope Francis heard about what was happening and his criticism of you. And I want to share with our viewers his personal message to you. He said in a video... The migrants must be received, they must be protected, they must be accompanied, and they must be integrated. Four things, receive, protect, accompany, integrate. What did that personal message mean to you? 
it reaffirmed the fact that we as a country must have that heart to welcome those that are fearing for their lives and to offer them protection, offer them uh, a humanitarian response that cares for humanity. And for especially those that are, are most vulnerable and, and mm -hmm. fragile and hurting at our border. Okay, sister, thank you for leaving us on that note this Easter. We'll be right back. For more on some of the organizations we've talked about, visit our website. And that is it for today. Thank you all for watching. Until next week. For Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were the Foreign Minister of Ukraine, Dmitry Kuleba, the former Commanding General of the U.S. Army in Europe, Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, Senator Chris Coons of Delaware, the Executive Director of the U.N.'s World Food Program, David Beasley, and Sister Norma Pimentel, the Executive Director of the Catholic Charities of the Rio Grande Valley. The Executive Producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com. And you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation's also on our digital network, CBSN, at 12 p.m. and 4 p.m. Eastern Time every Sunday. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.